0: This episode of Bloomberg Benchmark is sponsored by HSBC, winner of Trade Finance America's 2016 Company Award for Best Supply Chain Finance Bank in North America. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity.
1: The central banks are not the answer. After all these years and all of they've done, they still can't fix the global economy. Now we're in impotence territory.
0: Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It's Thursday, April 14. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics at Bloomberg News. My co-hosts, Aki Ito and Tori Stillwell, are out this week. So it's just me. Well, most of us familiar with the concept of outsourcing. The idea that companies and governments find it cheaper or more efficient to have outside groups handle things like customer support, legal services, programming, bill collection, data entry, and so on. And yes, sometimes this takes place overseas. A common example are the ubiquitous call centres, whenever you want to check your bank balance, book a hotel, or inquire about something on your cell phone bill. But outsourcing monetary policy? That seems to take it to a whole other level, yet in a way... That's what the Federal Reserve has done. Chair Janet Yellen effectively said as much last week when she told an audience in New York that the Fed dialed back its projections for how many times it will increase interest rates in response to investors dialing back first. Our colleague Rich Miller listened to her speech, picked up on the theme and wrote about it for Bloomberg News Rich has been following the US economy and the Fed for more than three decades. He joins us from Washington. Rich, great to have you. Thanks a lot for having me, Dan. Well, the textbooks tell us that markets are, in theory, supposed to respond to what policymakers say and do. This seems like the world has been turned upside down. What's going on?
2: Well, first of all, I just want to say, of course, Janet Yellen didn't say in her speech that uh, the Fed is outsourcing uh, monetary policy, and and Fed officials would undoubtedly object to that. But but what she laid out in the speech sure as as heck sounded like that. What happened was the markets got a little bit scared about global growth in China. So they adjusted down the um, amount of uh, interest rate increases they expected uh, from the Fed. In in response, long-term interest rates went down. Those long-term interest rates, lower long-term interest rates, provided the economy with some stimulus and helped keep the economy on track in the face of this jitters about global growth. So Janet Yellen said, this is great. This is like an automatic stabilizer. I mean, it's sort of like an ideal marriage where your partner sort of knows you so well that you don't even have to ask for the present for your birthday. She or he gets it before you even
0: ask. Well, we know the Fed keeps a close eye on markets. They've said that. That's no secret. But this does seem to elevate it to a new level.
2: Yes, yes, it does. I think there was a little bit of an ulterior motive here. The Fed has gotten slammed on Capitol Hill by Republican lawmakers and by some Republican-leaning economists for uh, following a policy that's too discretionary, too seat of the pants. And they, these people, uh, these lawmakers claim that investors don't understand what the Fed's going to do, and that hurts the economy. And Yellen was basically said, was trying to say, yes, the markets do understand what we're going to do. And in fact, they adjust before we adjust. So I think there was a little bit of a political backstory here that's going on, uh, the way she described uh, uh, the relationship between the two of them.
0: Well, what are the risks of
2: this approach?
0: Uh, well, the risk
2: are uh, what? Mis- misunderstandings and upsets like in a marriage, right? <laughs> uh, you know, harken back to what was it the middle of 2014. Investors were convinced that um, the Fed was going to have uh, what was called quantitative easing forever. It was going to keep on buying bonds in the market and keep on supporting the uh, economy. Then Chairman Ben Bernanke said, well, maybe we're going to end it, maybe we're going to taper it. And then the markets threw a hissy fit. They had a tantrum. Right? So that's that's the risk, that there's misunderstandings that could then lead to blow-ups later that could hurt the
0: economy. It really makes me wonder, again, to use the marriage analogy, who's in charge here? Who runs who?
2: Right, right. yeah, well, I guess in some marriages, uh, someone is clearly in charge and, and someone isn't. But I think in most, it's kind of a constant kind of, uh, at least in mine, constant kind of jockeying back and forth, trying uh, hopefully to get to a common goal, which in this case is you know a well-functioning economy. I mean, one of the problems is is that the, the goals don't always fully align. Usually, you know, investors want a, a well-functioning, growing economy, but you know sometimes they were more interested in you know the fact that their investments are doing. Well or badly. But uh, I think it's never clear. I think there's a constant learning process back and forth between the markets and the economy, just like in a, ma- in a marriage.
0: Just to use another analogy, isn't this a little bit like giving a drug addict more heroin? I mean, if you empower the markets to that extent and publicly say, you did it after markets did it, doesn't this just risk emboldening investors and they're going to want more and more and more and more and more, and, more and the Fed finds itself trapped?
2: I think there there is a risk for that, and then eventually the Fed will have to disappoint the markets, and then you get this kind of upset like we had with the taper tantrum. So I think there is a definite risk. And I guess it's up to the Fed to try to communicate clearly with the markets what when it thinks they're, they're uh, going too far. It, it, it also, I mean, we've gotten used to thinking the markets want more and more stimulus, but it, it, it is kind of interesting when you think about the initial years after the Great Recession. If you looked at the markets back then, they were always expecting the Fed to raise interest rates like a year out. But the Fed didn't have any intention to do that. So the Fed eventually had to go out and explain say, look, we aren't going to raise interest rates until, like, the middle of 2015. Don't worry, boys and girls. So, uh, it, you know, there is risks, but that's just the way things work.
0: And what is the risk that Fed officials misread the message that markets are conveying?
2: I mean, I think it's great. Obviously, um, I get. I guess trying to stick with this marriage analogy, you know, one of the partners is kind of someone whose who's mood flips from... Uh, Elation to uh, dejection, and that's the markets, right? As it, as it flips, as, as investors flip from greed to fear, then you have the other partner who's maybe stolid and uh, looks at models and rarely changes his or her mind. And sometimes the one who's you know saying you know uh, the end is near is right. Oftentimes the one who's saying the end is near is is not right. But sometimes the one who says don't worry, be happy, uh, or don't worry, things are copacetic, is wrong. So you know why they have, you know, a huge, they, the Fed, have a huge bunch of people in New York sort of in constant contact with the markets, trying to figure out what the message the markets are, trying then to to, to say, well, do we agree with what the markets are worried about or what the markets think they're doing or do we not?
0: Well, I hope this marriage doesn't end in an expensive custody trial, Rich. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, definitely. It's been great to have your perspective. Keep up the good work. Thank, Thank you. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I enjoyed it. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode of Bloomberg Benchmark is sponsored by HSBC. With over 8,000 global relationship managers on the ground in over 60 countries, HSBC makes your global ambition their local business. HSBC Well, the issues that Rich outlined touch on things, you know, we wrestle with daily here at Bloomberg News. And helping us flesh it out and maybe even have it out are two of my colleagues, Bob Burgess and Madeleine Lim. Bob is executive editor for Markets and Madeleine is executive editor for Bloomberg First Word. Tell us a little bit about what that actually is.
3: Hi, Dan, thank you for, for the introduction. And Bloomberg First Word is a very short bullet-point service about markets, issues and news that's of interest to markets in a very quick and condensed form.
0: Well, Bob, you've got to feel vindicated by this. Markets have won, right? I'll never be able to mix it up with you in quite the same way in our morning and afternoon news meetings.
1: Rich, I thought, uh, brought up some very interesting topics, but the one thing Rich didn't talk about was markets are always forward-looking, okay? Markets are not necessarily reactive to central banks, but they're more pricing in what is going to happen in the future, what is going to be the cost of money six months out, a year out. And so what we've seen um, over the past three years is that the markets have been continually more right on the outlook for for the economy. And um, the market has generally been more pessimistic on the pace of growth. The Fed has been more optimistic. And what we've seen over the past 12 to 18 months, maybe even two years, is that the Fed's outlook in the economy has continually come down to the market's view of the economy.
0: And yet markets will move in response to specific... Central bank events on any given day, often the way they should, you're drawing a distinction between the longer term and the short term. Right.
1: Markets will always have immediate reaction to whatever a central bank does on a certain uh, day. Uh, But the markets are going to be pricing in what is going to be what they think is going to be or what the market thinks is going to be happening 12 months out to a year out. And one of the big debates that is going on in, in markets these days, and you and I and, and Madeline have, have talked a lot about this, is just how effective is central bank you know policy these days. As you and I have debated, and Madeline has, uh, you know, we all talked about a lot in in recent weeks is is sort of the effectiveness of of global central banks and policies. We talked a lot about the diminishing returns that central central banks are getting from uh, this era of low or no interest rates. Uh, Kit Jukes, who's the chief market strategist at uh, Society uh, Generale, actually had a very good note out talking about how after the trillions of dollars of money that has been pumped into the global economy by central banks, here we are in 2016, April 2016, and all we're seeing is very low growth. This is your impotent point. Exactly. We're going to get to Ex- that in
0: just a second because okay. I've got something for you on okay. that. But Madeline, in your experience, are the markets always right? And how do you determine what they're actually saying? You can see what a phenomenological market level is, but how do you know that the interpretation
3: is right? Right. Well, I think it all depends on your perspective, right? And always remember, my short position is your long position, i.e. if you believe something's going up, you've got to sell it to somebody. So it's it's a give and take situation. But I do think that more broadly in a market-based capitalist system as we have, for a central bank not to pay attention to the markets and what the markets are saying, these are ultimately smart people who are doing their analysis and putting their money on the line or their investors' money on the line. You can't really ignore that. And um, I would sort of warn that, you know, we're not talking about the stock market here and its various ups and downs, nor are we talking about the FX markets, another completely different story. We are talking about the bond market here, which can be volatile, admittedly. But if you look at the 10-year yield since December it has been more or less on a downtrend. And 2% is the level that is really hard for the 10-year yield to get above in the US. And I think that tells you something about what investors feel is the outlook for growth.
0: But for both of you in your jobs, one of the things I find frustrating is how do you cut through the noise and find out what actually is the central point? Because it does feel like one day, market participants are saying the Fed needs to do this and they're hopeless at that. Then the next day, they're saying precisely the opposite. How do you sh- sort out, to quote Nate Silver,
1: the signal from the noise? As Madeline said, I mean, there, there's always going to be a buyer and a seller. And you're always going to have the ups and downs of the markets. But what we need to do every day is is take a step back, take a look at the big picture, and try to get a sense of what is the bigger picture or message that the markets are, are, are sending. And I think that in these days, it's clear that the markets are signaling that the outlook for the global economy is is pretty anemic. I mean, as Madeleine said, he's talking about the 10-year yield. Globally, bond yields on average are down 1 to 1.3%, a record low.
0: Does anemic often get conflated mistakenly with disastrous? If we go back to January and the first half of February, the narrative coming not just from the markets, but from some fairly serious economists as well, you could be forgiven for thinking the apocalypse was with us. And now here we are. The macroeconomic data hasn't changed dramatically, certainly within the US. China hasn't fallen apart. And the Eurozone's like, ah, you know, hanging in there.
1: Well, what I would say is you, you're right. I mean, it, the beginning of the year, there was a number of uh, different events that happened that uh, caused a lot of turmoil in markets. You had uh, China uh, weakening its, uh, its currency, raising concerns about a currency war. Oil and commodities uh, continued to collapse, um, raising concern about uh, deflation, global recession, defaults by energy companies that have raised hundreds of billions of dollars in, in recent years. You had all these events coming together. At the same time, you had the Bank of Japan going into negative interest rates and the European Central Bank going further into uh, ne- negative interest rates. And the message that was sending the markets was the central banks are not the answer. After all these years and all of they've done, they still can't fix the global economy. Now we're in impotence territory, for want of a better term. Right. But, you know, so I, I think that, you know, taking a look at all that, first couple of months of the year, it was very turbulent in markets, and markets were um, were reacting to that. They weren't just reacting to, to what central banks were doing. March was a tremendous comeback. I think in the S&P 500, um, we were down 10% through mid-February. And then the S&P 500 recouped all that through the end of March. It was the biggest turnaround in in history for the markets.
0: So that makes me wonder who was right in January, February? Or were they both right?
1: They were both right. The markets are not signaling now that it's all clear. While back in in January and February, there was a lot of concern about, as I said, deflation, global recession. That's come out of the market, but the market is not signaling that it's all clear.
3: Right. And I would just uh, add to that what Bob says is that you have to just be mindful of when, when you talk about the market, what you're, how you look at things. I, I really do think the perspective really matters. If you take what the market is pricing in now for it, like Bob says, in the next years ahead, you know, rather than looking at the noise. You have to kind of look at the long term and then sort of from there, and it wouldn't be tenable to have the market pricing in, you know, very low likelihood of maybe even two rate hikes this year and the Fed still maintaining, no, we're going to raise rates for. And You can't have that dichotomy go on for too long. At some point, something has to converge. And I think for the Fed to look at the model – you know, the Fed looks at its economic models, the market looks at their economic models, and I think taking it together, it's just using all the data that you can to formulate the best policy that you can come up with. I think right or wrong is a hard question to answer, because ultimately, if the policy is set right, then yes, you should see growth pick up, right? Come the middle of the year, the picture looks different you're trying to create the conditions now that foster growth in the future and I think that's a really hard balance to achieve and we shouldn't be trying to parse too much out of the day-to-day moves. And I would really warn against looking too closely. Isn't at that what market. we do? <laughs> Maybe. But, but the other thing, you know, is, is I think what happened at the beginning of the year is people were setting up for the Fed. You know, the Fed was tightening policy. They started in December and people were trying to set up for that. And there was a lot of volatility around. And I think that added to the whole concern of what was going on.
0: And some big names thought that they would have to revert to QE. And that they would take interest rates off the table altogether. Now, they've scaled back their projections, as Rich was just saying, but they haven't taken them off the table, and they certainly haven't eased. Let's get back to the I-word, Bob. <laughs> I can buy the argument that the central bank efforts now are suffering diminishing returns,
1: but there still is a return there. Are you sure it's impotence? I think it depends on how you look at it, Um from the market perspective, if you're looking about at strictly what central banks are doing to asset prices, it's probably not evident because... They're still, uh, the ECB, the BOJ, they're still buying bonds um, and other financial assets. The Federal Reserve, even though it's not creating money to buy bonds, it's reinvesting the, the proceeds from the maturing bonds into new securities, so that money is, is, is cycling back in. That's actually, that's supporting the bond market. There's no question about it. But when people start talking about whether the central banks and the Fed are, are impotent or not, they are talking really about the transition mechanism in the sense that is the wealth in the financial markets that the central banks have created, is that leaking into or helping the real economy? And in a lot of ways, they're saying that it's not helping the real economy. Take a look at um, the the Atlanta Fed and its estimates of GDP for the first quarter. I think it's down to below one percent now. Beginning of the year, it was supposed to be something between two and a half to three percent. So that I think, when the market sees that, sees that, it tells them something. Right. Now, and to that-
0: be fair to the Atlanta Fed, that is a tracking estimate, which does change, you know, week by week, depending on incoming data.
3: And I just wanted to say that we'll, that is the crux of what the ECB is doing to get away from the Fed just a little bit. Their buying program of corporate bonds, what will really matter is whether that trickles through to small and medium-sized companies. And as we know, in Europe, those are much less dependent on the markets and do a lot more through bank financing, so are that's a, the, hard.
0: Are any of the market participants that your teams are talking to saying that the initial stimulus, and by initial I mean say from... Late two thousand and seven through to, for argument's sake, twenty ten. Are they saying those were ineffective in staving off depression?
1: No, there, there, there's no question about it. But um, that was two thousand seven to two thousand ten. You know, two thousand seven to two thousand ten. We're, we're now in two thousand sixteen. It doesn't seem to be working as effectively as it did then. So that's an argument for diminishing returns. It is, but
3: remember when when the Fed begins to stop reinvestment, that's going to be another big adjustment, particularly for one market that never gets much mentioned, which is the mortgage-backed securities market. That is going to be something to watch.
0: Well, Madeline, you're responsible for first word. That means for the last word, I do have to come back to Bob.
1: <laughs> By all means. Well, like I said, it, it, as Madeline said earlier, I mean. If you're trying to answer the questions about whether markets are right or wrong, there, there is no answer to that. Uh, the markets are going to, they're just going to vacillate from day to day on the incoming data. But if you take a step back, take a look at the markets as a whole, uh, the message that they're signaling is that uh, central banks can't do it alone. And
0: meanwhile,
1: every Fed official says, hey,
0: but the April meeting is still a live meeting. Well, Bob and Madeline, thanks for joining us. We're going to definitely have you back. And thank you to all of you for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and a few others. And while you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And do let us know what you thought of this show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at, at @DanielMossDC at Tori Stillwell and at Aki Ito 7. This episode of Bloomberg Benchmark was sponsored by HSBC. With HSBC, you have up-to-the-minute visibility and control of your global cash positions, so your business can move at the speed of opportunity. HSBC.